Welcome to the Fallon Forum, where we bring you independent voices and civil dialogue across the political divide. I'm Ed Fallon, your host, and we are coming to you from the heart of America's heartland, Des Moines, Iowa. If you value what we do, we could sure use your support. So, you know, visit the donations page on the Fallon Forum website, or if you run a small business or nonprofit, consider becoming a sponsor. And speaking of sponsors, thanks to Gateway Marketing Cafe, Des Moines' locally owned grocery and specialty food store. Gateway's Cafe is open for dine-in, carry-out, and delivery service seven days a week. Gateway has an excellent local produce selection as well, and you can check out their catering and floral services. That's Gateway Marketing Cafe. Thanks also to Vibes Kitchen and Bar, serving creative interpretations of American classic food and drink. Vibes offers a relaxed and welcoming atmosphere with an awesome outdoor patio. It's the perfect place for parties and for watching your favorite sports team. Learn more at Vibe's Facebook page. All right, later in the program, we will be talking with Ted Glick about a five-day march to pressure New Jersey's governor to keep his promise not to expand fossil fuel infrastructure in that state. Uh, and sorry, uh, sorry to be the bearer of, of less-than-fun tidings, but uh, we've got to be honest with each other, right? Uh, we'll also be talking today with Ira Helfand about nuclear weapons, nuclear war. Yep, there's still a lot of them out there, and it amazes me that we don't see a greater effort to address the problem. Uh, finally, in our farm and food segment, Kathy Burns will join us, and we'll be having our monthly garden Q&A. You see, I knew we could end on a happy note. Uh, yeah, drought, heat waves, and regional flooding notwithstanding. Uh, so, hey... But to our first conversation, I'd like to introduce you to David Kraft. He's the director of the Nuclear Energy Information Service. He's got quite a background, including having served as a member of the Illinois Department of Nuclear Safety Citizen Advisory Group. He was also with the National Nuclear Waste Citizens Coalition. His bio is uh, long and impressive, and we're going to just skip the rest of it and say hello, David. Welcome to the program. Thank you very much. Glad to be here. So uh, let's talk about nuclear power and whether it should be part of the renewable portfolio taking us forward into the new climate era. Well, the simple answer is absolutely not. <laughs> uh, and it's abstract. You know, the, the nuclear hucksters like to talk about how clean and green nuclear is and it's emissions free. Uh, first of all, those are misnomers and it's incorrect. But beyond that, when you get down to the details about nuclear, we find that it, it's a miserable failure in terms of actually dealing with the climate crisis. How so? Um, if you're going to if you're going to pick an energy resource to deal with climate code red, it's got to operate under four rules. It's got to take the most carbon out of the air in the quickest time, at the lowest cost, and this is this is the one people forget without creating additional you know planet threatening hazards like nuclear war, nuclear terrorism, nuclear waste, that sort of stuff. Nuclear fails every one of those, whereas the renewables and energy efficiency are the best choices. In fact, the energy future we have been advocating for over 40 years now is both carbon-free and nuclear-free. It emphasizes building out renewable energy and energy efficiency. Uh, the current uh, technology is, is pushing us in the direction of energy storage of various kinds, not just batteries. But most importantly... Uh, we've overlooked our transmission system, and if we upgrade the transmission system significantly, that also will contribute to making us more energy secure. And that so has, on those four reasons, uh, that's why we say nuclear really doesn't have a role or shouldn't have a role right. in our energy future. Well, and, and upgrading transmission systems has its own problems, at least here in the upper Midwest it certainly does. Uh, 
uh, there was a huge pushback against building a transmission line to carry wind energy from the uh, from northwest Iowa to Chicago. In fact, that pushback was so uh, effective that it defeated the uh, transmission lines. And I, I have I, I have some empathy for the landowners who don't want to see a transmission line cutting across their property, but. Uh, that's a that's a that's a separate problem too. What do you say though to people like James Hansen? I mean, one of the leading climate voices in the U.S. for decades, for probably fifty years. Met, yeah, I met James uh, a few years back in Illinois when they were launching a pro-nuclear campaign here, and I went up to him and had a conversation. And I said to him, you know, Dr. Hansen, I have followed you for years as a climate scientist. When you speak about climate, I will follow you to the gates of hell. <laughs> but. As far as nuclear power goes, you're out of your league. <laughs> and I'm not the only one who has said that. The former chairman of the Nuclear Regulatory Commission, Gray Yatsko, has said that publicly, and we have an interesting little videotape of him saying this, that Hansen is closed-minded when it comes to nuclear, uh, and that's a problem for a scientist to be closed-minded you know, to new data that comes in. And um, you know, Hansen's talking about all kinds of you know, building nuclear reactors faster and better. And, and I said, well, if you have money to do that, then you have money to do it for renewables, don't you? Well, well, you know, and he just, he just wouldn't hear it. So Hansen is, is kind of bought by the nuclear industry as a mouthpiece now. But huh. there are actually, as I said, faster, cheaper, and better ways of taking carbon out of the atmosphere than going down the nuclear rat hole one more time. So it, would you imply that that, uh, that somehow uh, James Hansen has been, on the, you know, been, been paid off by uh, nuclear interests to not be critical of the industry? He's been working with an organization called, uh, oh dear, I forget what it is, Environment, uh, Energy Environment, something like that, mm -hmm. with Michael Schellenberger of the West okay. Coast. Right. And yeah, uh, you know, it's definitely a, a situation where He's the mouthpiece. Uh, the money for that organization has been very, very, uh, let's say, shall we say, obscured. Mm -hmm. But we do know that uh, one of the Pritzker family people, one of the billionaires out there, has been financing it pretty heavily. So, and this is a billionaire who has uh, investments in nuclear power. Well, we don't know that exactly, but mm. uh, this person allegedly is uh, very much the, the financial support for Michael mm. Schellenberger's work. Okay. So what about, I mean, you've heard of, of course, SSO, you know more about this than I've, 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 I've forgotten. I mean, I just, I, actually, I said that backwards. You've forgotten more about this than I know. But, uh, yeah, small modular reactors, these are the new reactors that are supposed to be, uh, they're, they're slimmed down versions of these, of the big reactors we're used to. Uh, they produce less power, but they're also cheaper. Uh, and I, I saw one, um, one industry uh comment that said, and I quote, they're designed to be safer than traditional water-cooled reactors. Do you buy that? Are they safer? Well, you know, this is the thing. It reminds me of the old Einstein quote of, you know, insanity is doing the same thing over and over, expecting different results. And what we've done here now with these small modular reactors, yes, there are many, many designs, and on paper, they're theoretically supposed to be safer, cheaper, you know, better than sliced white bread, the whole deal. <laughs> but the, the reality is none of them exist right now. And certainly not, they're not going to be commercialized until after 2030, which is the kind of drop-dead date that the IPCC has set for the climate crisis. Right. Uh, when you also take a look at the amount of money that's going to have to be invested from the Department of Energy and elsewhere into this program, again, 
It's money that's not going into renewables, efficiency, transmission improvements, and storage. So you have to take a look at at everything and go down to the detail. And what we really have here is two things going on. We have the industry desperate to come up with some way to keep that DOE money flowing to justify all kinds of tax incentives, which we just had in this uh, recent IRA bill that got passed. Uh, It's been calculated somewhere on the order of 50 to $70 billion in tax uh, uh, loopholes and and bailouts for the nuclear industry is is contained in that bill. So it's pretty serious. And the small modulars, as, as they are designed right now, the majority of them have to utilize a very special fuel. I don't want to get too geeky here, but I think you'll, <laughs> you'll understand the point. Okay. Called HALU. That stands for a high assay, low enriched uranium. Mm-hmm. Guess what the only source of HALU is on the planet today? Uh, Russia. You... Oh, really? So, okay. You know, so in order to even run these things, even in an experimental way, the only source of the fuel is Russia. And we're not going to have an infrastructure in place in the United States to manufacture our own much before 2027, 2028, according to the experts. That's fascinating. So everywhere you look down the line, this is another nuclear boondoggle that Jennifer Granholm and the Biden administration are going around the country getting real excited about for no good reason. In fact, again, it'll be a delay on actually dealing with the climate crisis. And again, Jennifer Granholm, uh, former governor of Michigan, I believe. Correct. And now currently the energy secretary? Energy secretary. Right, yeah. Uh, what, what's her What's her interest in seeing these reactors uh, get fifty million? Fifty was it fifty billion bucks in the uh, Inflation Reduction Act? Yeah, it, that money goes to both the old reactors that need bailing out, such as the ones that are closed in Iowa and the ones that are closing, right. hopefully in Illinois, but also the new ones. Um, Granholm, as Secretary of Energy, is is merely the mouthpiece for the Biden administration, which is one sure. of the most pro nuclear administrations we have seen in the 40 years of our existence here at NEIS. Um, They like all things nuclear, which is somewhat of an outgrowth of the Obama administration, which had very, very close ties with the Exelon Corporation, which has now split itself again into a new corporation called Constellation, which manages all of their nuclear plants. Hmm. So there are political ties here, and that's one of the discussions that never gets interjected, uh, you know, on conversations like ours and in more depth is, the political connectedness of nuclear is astonishing, mm. and it is very corrupt if you look at the news over the last five to ten years. We had multi-million dollar uh, corruption scandals re- in regarding nuclear power in Illinois, in Ohio, in South Carolina. You have the cost overrun fiasco in Georgia where two reactors are projected to cost $32 billion for the site. Uh, this is nonsense, and it's all collected to corrupt, uh, connected to corruption that never gets prosecuted. Yeah. So this is part of the driving force on nuclear as well. So you know we, we think of uh, we think of corrupting money in energy, and we think of uh, big oil, Exxon Mobil in particular, and certainly some of the other large uh, fossil fuel giants. But uh, you're saying that uh, maybe we should be paying attention to the corrupting influence of money that supports the nuclear industry as well. Absolutely. Absolutely. The evidence is there. I mean, the FBI has indicted people. I mean, we lost the Speaker of the House of Illinois, who was a speaker for over 40 years over a nuclear corruption. And in Ohio, it's even worse. There's over $60 million bribery case that's going on involving their Speaker of the House, who had to step down. Um, it's rampant. Political in South po- Carolina, you know, there was a, 
$10 billion nuclear plant, which finally one of the executives uh, admitted had been built under the fraudulent basis. They were fudging the data, and the mm. project got canceled. So what happened with the uh, Speaker of the House in Illinois? Well, his name is Michael Madigan, and he pretty much ran the show for decades. And again, you make political allies, and the energy companies here in Illinois, which was uh, for the distribution system, it would be Commonwealth Edison. For the actual power, it was Exelon Corporation. And then downstate, in, in downstate Illinois, it was the Ameren Company, which uh, drives a lot of coal plants. So, um, you know, that political connectedness was there forever. And what he was doing, allegedly, and this remains to be uh, litigated, I suppose, um, it was pay for play, essentially. Mm, okay. There were workers who were getting jobs who didn't have to huh. go to work and people were being appointed to okay. the board of Exelon. It was, it was so political place. corruption in Illinois, that's kind of a new thing, right? Uh, yeah, yeah, we're not used to that. <laughs> wait, wait, <laughs> how many Illinois, gov Illinois governors ended up in prison? Three? <laughs> they actually have a special prison built. <laughs> special prison for Illinois governors. Oh. When they close down one of the reactors, they're going to convert it. <laughs> now, that's, that's the kind of adaptive reuse we really admire around here. So, hey, uh, David, in uh, Scientific America, American, rather, there's um, an article recently, um, and I'll quote you. It says, controlling carbon in the atmosphere will require a mix of energy technologies, potentially including nuclear reactors, which emit no carbon, but are seen as risky because of, and I, I highlighted this, a few major accidents. How would you respond to that kind of, um, I, even, I, I would even think a pro-nuclear power person might find that statement a little bizarre we that those are the kinds of statements we have been reacting against for decades now so let's start at the top it's a climate crisis underlined boldface you know red letters crisis in a crisis you set priorities okay when you're on the titanic and it's heading for the iceberg <laughs> you know now is not the time to have a metallurgy conference on the poop deck for, for hull integrity it's time to get the lifeboats going and, and the life preservers. It's right. the same with the climate crisis. We know what works. We know renewables and efficiency work. In fact, energy efficiency per dollar spent can take two and a half to six times the amount of carbon out of the atmosphere than nuclear power can. And you can do energy efficiency programs within six months to a, to two years. Nuclear reactors take up to a decade to build. I mean, mm -hmm. it's just... The calculus is just absolutely dumb. So, first of all, you react as a crisis. You set priorities. You go with what works, and you do it, you know, gung-ho, you know, Manhattan Project style. Mm -hmm. You don't waste time and money right. on pipe dreams that may or may not pan out. Right. Now, this notion of a few accidents, people and yeah, governments understand it, but they don't want the people to understand that nuclear accidents are qualitatively different than any other kind of accident you can imagine. Sure. Because once you have it and the fires are put out, the accident still continues. <laughs> there is still radiation out there, as we found out at the Chernobyl site when the Russians occupied right. the site. And, and, and look at Fukushima. Now, and Fukushima, that's going you know, to go on forever. And that's one of the qualitative differences that people don't understand. Uh, they're called black swans. There's a terrific book in 2005, written with that title uh, by a mathematician, a statistician, who points out that it's a low probability of something going wrong, 
but it's a catastrophically high result when it happens, not if it happens. Mm. And the problem is we can't predict when mm. it's going to happen. Right. And as we found out, it's already happened several times. If you go on to Wiki, and I don't say that that's the greatest source in the world, but it gives you some good footnotes to follow up, and type in world's worst nuclear accidents, you will find, I believe it's over 20 at this point, nuclear accidents around the world hmm. that exceeded $100 million in damage estimates. Hmm. You don't hear about that. I wonder if you search yeah. for uh, wind energy, wind turbine accidents, or uh, solar array accidents, you probably wouldn't find a long list of casualties. Well, that's an interesting, <laughs> interesting point, too. Right. The nuclear folks like to point to the fact that they have a very safe industry. Yeah. And relatively speaking, they do because they have to. Right. When you contain a thousand Hiroshima's in a box, yeah. wow. it better work, you know. And you got to protect your workers, so of course they have high standards. And of course you're going to have, you know, people falling off of wind towers. You're going to have blades that break. Yeah. Uh, there will be these kinds of industrial accidents. Minoring, minoring comparison, uh, David. I got to run to a break. Uh, thank you uh, so much for joining us. It's been a pleasure. Uh, we're available if you need us again, www.neis.org. Folks, we were talking with David Kraft with the Nuclear Energy Information Service. Uh, this is Ed Fallon. We've got to take a short break, and when we come back, we'll talk about a march. You know how much I love marches and long walks. This one focused on ending fossil fuel expansion in New Jersey. Uh, before we do, I want, to, I want to wrap up my conversation with David by leaving you with this reflection on nuclear power from one of my favorite social commentators, Homer Simpson. Homer... Do you have any plans for after graduation? Me? I'm going to drink a lot of beer and stay out all night. <laughs> oh, no, I meant career-wise. You know, that nuclear power plant will be opening soon. It's one of the few outfits around that won't require a college education. Me in a nuclear power plant. <laughs> Kaboom! <laughs> Gateway Marketing Cafe is Des Moines' locally owned grocery and specialty food store, centrally located at ML King Parkway and Woodland Ave. Enjoy chef-crafted prepared foods, artisan baked goods, organic produce, hand-cut meats, local and international cheeses, wines, and craft beer. Gateway's Cafe is open for dine-in, carry-out, and delivery service seven days a week. Stop by or visit gatewaymarket.com for more details. Gateway Market. Good food, great community. You're responsible for a lot, and it's easy to become overwhelmed, to feel helpless, even hopeless. What's not so easy is finding your way back to feeling and functioning better. Psychiatrist Dr. David Drake helps individuals and couples throughout Iowa with the convenience and privacy of televideo counseling. Dr. Drake also prescribes medication when needed, and his services are offered on a self-pay basis. If you need help, don't delay. Contact Dr. Drake at daviddrakefamilypsychiatry.com. Vibes Kitchen and Bar in downtown Des Moines at the corner of 13th and Walnut serves clever, creative, modern interpretations of American classic bites and drinks. The Vibes team offers great food and customer service in a relaxed and welcoming atmosphere. Vibes is the perfect place for your party or function, and it's got an outdoor patio ideal for hobnobbing with friends and co-workers or for watching your favorite sports team. Learn more at Vibes Kitchen and Bar's Facebook page. Welcome back to the Family Forum. You know, at a time when big corporations control most of the media, 
Our niche here is more important than ever. So please support what we do. Uh, go to the Fallon Forum website, donate, even better, become a monthly sponsor. And speaking of sponsors, uh, thanks to Westrom Optometry, located in Des Moines East Village. Dr. Joel Westrom and his staff are fluent in English and Spanish. The clinic is open Monday through Friday from 9 a.m. until 5 p.m. and on Saturdays by appointment. That's Westrom Optometry. My next guest, folks, is uh, Ted Glick. He's a writer, a public speaker, and a longtime activist who has devoted the past 20 years to fighting the climate crisis. He's one of the first people that uh, reached out to me back in 2013 when we began organizing the uh, Great March for Climate Action. Uh, Ted, welcome to the program. Yeah, thank you. It's uh, nice to uh, connect with you, Ed. Thanks a lot. Yeah, you've done, you know, so much since I first got to know you nearly, what, 10 years ago that I, I can't keep up with it all. Um, but most recently, you were involved with a march called Governor Murphy, Walk Your Talk on Climate. Uh, what inspired that march? Well, there has been a coalition of uh, now about 125 organizations, New Jersey organizations, environmental groups, climate justice groups, some uh, local labor unions, religious groups, uh, student organizations that has come together over these last four or so years in response to the uh, very large number of fossil fuel projects that, at one, that um, have been attempted. Some of them actually have been built and some are still pending here in the state. When we formed this coalition uh, towards the latter part of 2018, there were about a dozen of these projects. Wow. Most, of, most of them are, uh, are very much related to the fact that uh, New Jersey is just to the east of Pennsylvania, which uh, over here in the northeast is kind of uh, you know, ground zero as far as fracking, you know, hydraulic oh, so, fracturing oh, for gas. Are we talking about pipelines and, that would run through New Jersey then, or...? Yeah, it's pipelines, it's compressor stations to push the gas through the pipeline. Uh -huh. There's actually a, an export terminal that's still uh, a possibility in southern New Jersey to export gas uh, from Pennsylvania, frack gas from Pennsylvania. Uh, and there's also power plants, gas-fired power plants. Okay. So that, that's what we've been fighting, and we have won some victories. We have defeated outright three of those proposed wow. projects. Congratulations. Uh, there's there, there's still seven of them that are live, um, and um, you know our our coalition came to the decision that we needed to keep you know, ramping up our game, and um, we've been really pressing Governor Murphy, who says he is all about climate change. He says a lot of good things. He has done some good things, um, but uh, he has been really uh, really deficient on this front because he. Uh, just has been totally unwilling to even consider the idea of a moratorium on new fossil fuel infrastructure. So That's you see, what we've been trying, so you primarily say your, calling your coalition was able to stop three of these projects, and mm -hmm. uh, was Governor Murphy on your side of that effort, or was he opposing it? Well, he eventually was on our side. I mean, he eventually stepped in uh, as a result of you know, years, frankly, uh, mm. pretty much in each case, years of pressure. Actually, there, there was, I, I will give him credit for one, there was one project called the Penn East Pipeline coming from Pennsylvania into, into New Jersey. And I will give him and his administration credit that they did 
uh, in response to being approached by local homeowners uh, along the route of this proposed pipeline, um, approaching him, uh, they, they did respond, and uh, they actually went to court mm. um, to oppose this pipeline. This one pipeline in central would, would come into would have come into central New Jersey, and eventually um, through the organizing on the ground. I mean, in all in all the cases, it was organizing on the ground mm-hmm. that was a prerequisite for any victories for sure. But you know, this broader and, coalition and, certainly and helped. How, how would those homeowners have been affected? Well, the, the pipelines, you know, the eminent domain would okay. have been used. So they would have had their land. They would have had their land taken. Okay. They would have had their land taken. Yeah. Yes. Okay. And so they might have had pipelines going through their backyards. So you, you've been effective at stopping stopping some of these uh, expansion, these fossil fuel expansion projects. How do you uh, how do you feel the march? Uh, and this again was a five day march. Right. Uh, a short march by by my standards, but it's still a long walk, <laughs> and. Uh, what, how do you, do you, did you have a good sense of uh, it having a positive impact throughout the uh, uh, duration of the week? Uh, uh, yeah, yeah, definitely. No, it was a very positive kind of spirit to the whole thing. We had uh, four successful rallies uh, along the route, you know, over the course of the five days of, of, of the march. About 300 people came out in total for those different rallies. Um, and we had a tremendous success when it uh, comes to when it came to media coverage. It was uh, a pleasant surprise. We we ended up having um, three uh, TV stations. Um, mm. Two of them uh, from New York City, New York City based. One uh, uh, NBC, the local affiliate in New mm. York City, uh, Channel Four. Uh, they had a, had very good coverage of the last day of our walk, our final rally. And then two other stations, WPIX, which has been around since like television basically was invented as a TV station in, in New York City, uh, they they covered us twice. Mm-hmm. And then then the PBS station in New Jersey, uh, NJTV, it's they good. also covered us twice. And, and, and all and, of the co- all the coverage was good. So we think it was very that was very successful. Good. And any response from Murphy or his office? No, no, we haven't heard anything. You know, that's kind of par for the course. Uh, he tries to act as if we don't exist. Um, so we, you know, we we will uh, now be meeting soon to assess next steps. This was not the end of anything. This was one of our latest tactics. And uh, one of the things I've thought of is that maybe we need to uh, publicly call upon him to, like, you know, negotiate with us. But it may not come mm. to anything. So what? But what? He, he he has to know we're not going away, and and we're gonna, you know move on from here to do and, other things. And what specifically did he say or promise that he's not delivering on? Uh, well, there's just the, the, these different projects, you know, uh, are still alive. Uh, you know, a lot of what Governor Murphy does, it's, you know, not atypical for politicians, is that they will say good things. Uh, if they're really pressed, they will do something. Uh, a good example of his approach is that uh, one of the projects is uh, in Newark, New Jersey, um, and there's you know very strong opposition. It's like an environmental justice issue in terms of putting a right. another frack gas power plant into a community that already has three mm, uh, wow. power plants, gas power plants in in downtown Newark. And um, so he actually intervened to uh, stop the the agency that you know is the decision maker on whether to go ahead with this 
from just you know approving it and he's he basically said you need to take more time to look at alternatives hmm. and then he didn't you know there's nothing else that he did that we know of that that did help right. that definitely did help it has prolonged uh, and extended the time period you know that they're taking it's now been a year and a half that we've held them up from and we think they were about to approve it when hmm. we really all got right. into the thing uh, but he hasn't done more than that, and and you know, uh, it's um, he's just not being affirmative. Uh, I mean, the the international. This is something we we constantly keep talking about. The International Energy Agency said almost a year and a half ago that if we're going to deal with the climate crisis, if we're going to prevent it from becoming right. totally catastrophic. We need to stop building out fossil fuel, the fossil fuel industry. Right. Uh, that's what that's what the IEA said, not the Sierra Club. The IEA. Right. And yeah. and and it's like uh, so many of uh, Governor Murphy and so many other politicians. It's like you know went in one ear and out the other. So yeah, not I, taking I, it seriously by their actions. And that that is the scientific consensus. And that of course you have uh, you know the the. Inflation Reduction Act, or let's call it what it is, the, the climate bill mostly, uh, that, you know, despite doing some arguably good things, does a lot to continue to promote uh, expanding the fossil fuel network. Yeah, uh, it, it's, it's, yeah it, it's kind of like all of the above. I mean, it, there are good things about the bill, and there are certainly analyses that indicate that, that, that assess, their assessment is that the, uh, the, the positives are pretty significantly higher than the negatives, yeah. but it still is a... It's a bill that Joe Manchin was involved in shaping, basically. So, <laughs> so it can't be. So it can't be that good, right? Be. Right. Yeah. So uh, when, back to Governor Murphy and and and, you, and the march. Uh, when is uh, when is Murphy up for re-election? Uh, he can't. Uh, he can't run for election again. He oh, can't okay. run for president, and he definitely is making uh, moves that indicate he, uh, you know, may well throw his hat into that ring if Biden says he's not going to run again. Uh, he, he, I think he's been, he's, he raised like $2 million, uh, or there's some kind of mm. a, a, a special pact that's been set up, you know, with $2 million in right. funding to support, kind of to push him out there. Which so he, he can't run, he, he was reelected uh, last year for his second term here as governor, uh, but um, he, he can't run again. Okay. Now, he can't yep. have, you're one of the states that has term He definitely is being talked about in the press here as a yeah. uh, potential presidential candidate. So, yeah. and, and frank, frankly, we, we consider that to be something uh, that is, uh, could, can be to our benefit, because if, if he increasingly is seen uh, nationally uh, that, uh, that in, in the, you know, not just a few environmental groups, but 125 organizations uh, are fighting him, basically, over his unwillingness to take the action needed mm. um, to stop New Jersey from being what it is, this kind of throughway for the uh, fracking, frack gas industry uh, in terms of pipelines, mm. export terminals, and the rest of it. If he's not going to take a strong stand against that. Yeah, so, so beyond, gonna, beyond, just doing, beyond just doing the right thing because it's the right thing, uh, if Murphy is indeed interested in higher office, whether it's the U.S. Senate eventually or running for president, then he would want to deliver on some aspect of addressing the climate crisis in his home state. So that's uh, that's something you've got going for you there. Now, um, mm -hmm. the march, uh, it seems to have had a very positive impact. Uh, it's always hard to measure these things. But what's, what's next for your coalition in terms of continuing to keep the pressure on? Well, we definitely will be continuing with the uh, focus on the on these these uh, individual 
projects, these seven uh, uh, efforts that are underway to try to expand the gas industry here. In every case, there are you know local groups that are leading the fights um, against them, and you know we've learned a lot over the years. So you know we, we have a fairly uh, seasoned um, kind of uh, roster and a bench here of activists who you know know something about how how you fight these things. Although it's it's, it's hard to beat them, but you know, we have one sum, so we have a pretty good idea what, what we need to try to do. Um, so that's definitely just a constant. That's constant. Uh, what we um, are, we, what we have been doing, though, this this, uh, this walk was really the second of uh, kind of a, uh, an escalation of our tactics, you could say. We did a, our, our first escalation was a, a workday rally in Trenton, New Jersey on the almost the very last day of the legislative session uh, right there kind of where the governor and all the legislators are and we had a, had an effective rally with hundreds of people very uh, racially mixed it was very positive uh, representing all these seven projects mm. the speakers uh, that that was in some ways a kickoff of this kind of new phase of of empower New Jersey that's the name of this coalition of Empower New Jersey kind of starting to be much more out there and more visible. Yeah. And then this walk, this walk was two two months later. Um, so, you know, th- this coming week we will be meeting to assess um, the walk and uh, start planning for what we do in the future. And there are some ideas out there, nothing really firm yet, yeah. but... Um, well, definitely, uh, definitely energy to keep this going. I think New Jersey's experience right now with regards to the fossil fuel build-out is not that different than most parts of the country. Here in Iowa, of course, mm-hmm. our battle is against uh, 2,000 miles across our state of proposed carbon dioxide pipeline, which, uh, of course, the proponents argue is going to help address the climate crisis. But as you study it, even though you, you don't have to dig in that deep even, you realize, hey, this is also part of the fossil fuel build-out. Um, Ted, thank you uh, so much for joining us. Yeah, well, thank you. I appreciate it, and good luck with your fight out there. Thank you. you. Whenever any of us wins anywhere, it's helpful to all of us everywhere. Folks, we've been talking with Ted Glick, and this is, again, Ed Fallon. We've got to take a short break, and when we come back, I'm sorry, we're going to discuss nuclear war. I know you don't want to do that, but we must. It's important. So let's be honest. Let's be adults. Let's talk with uh, Dr. Ira Helfand about what we must do to avoid the unthinkable. Back in a minute on the Fallon Forum. Gateway Marketing Cafe is Des Moines' locally owned grocery and specialty food store. With over 5,000 items to choose from, you can order groceries online and the Gateway team will bring them to you curbside. It's a convenient way to shop from anywhere and save time. Gateway's Cafe is open for dine-in, carry-out and delivery service seven days a week with catering and floral services also available. Visit gatewaymarket.com for more details. Gateway Market, good food, great community. At Westrom Optometry, Dr. Joel Westrom and his team provide a variety of services, including comprehensive eye exams, children's eye exams, and LASIK co-management. Whether strictly utilitarian or a fashion statement, your comfort and vision are Westrom's primary concern. Dr. Westrom and his staff will work closely with you to determine the best solution for your eyes, prescription, and lifestyle. Services are provided in English and Spanish, and the clinic is open Monday through Friday from 9 a.m. till 5 p.m. and on Saturdays by appointment. That's Westrom Optometry, located in Des Moines East Village.
Welcome back to the Fallon Forum. You know, you can support this alternative to the angry shock jocks by becoming a monthly donor or a business sponsor. Uh, check out the Fallon Forum website for details about that. Uh, thanks, uh, in speaking to sponsors, thanks to uh, psychiatrist Dr. David Drake. If you live in Iowa, wherever you live in Iowa, Dr. Drake can help through the convenience and privacy of televideo counseling offered on a self-pay basis. Contact DavidDrakeFamilyPsychiatry.com. Thanks also to Story County Veterinary Clinic, where Dr. Kim Holding has been caring for large and small animals alike for over 30 years. You can learn more at Story County Veterinary Clinic's Facebook page. All right, I am now joined by Dr. Ira Helfand. He is active with the International Campaign to Abolish Nuclear Weapons. He's also the past president of the International Physicians for the Prevention of Nuclear War. Ira, welcome to the program. Good morning. So this is not a happy, feel-good kind of conversation, but it's one we need to have. I know we've got, what, 15,000 nuclear weapons in the world? Uh, about 13,000 at this point, which is more than enough to destroy everything we cherish many, many times over. Yeah, and uh, I'm guessing, too, that, uh, I mean, it's, you know, I got, I got active back in the 80s when this was the prominent issue of concern, and it seems to have faded significantly, but now there's kind of a renewed concern and interest, in large part given the, uh, the you know, the invasion of Ukraine by Russia. Have you seen uh, any increased momentum toward actually doing something about the, the problem? Well, there certainly has been increased awareness of the danger of nuclear war since the Russian invasion of Ukraine. But there's still a very large disconnect between the enormity and the imminence of the danger that we face and the amount of attention it's getting. You know, as you pointed out, in the 1980s, this was viewed as the great issue of the day. And the experts are telling us now that the danger of nuclear war is greater today than it was then. And why, the, but, why, why is that? Well, there are a number of factors that play into it. I mean, certainly the U.S.-Russia uh, situation has gotten much worse. Uh, U.S.-Russian relations are the, the worst they've been since the end of the Cold War. Mm -hmm. But that's only one of several factors. U.S.-Chinese relations mm -hmm. are the worst they've been in, in at least 40 years. And there is a very real possibility of conflict there over Taiwan, which could escalate to nuclear war. The situation in South Asia between India and Pakistan, which we don't pay that much attention to here in the United States, is extraordinarily dangerous and volatile. They have fought four wars already. They came close to war twice in 2019. And experts tell us that if there is another war in South Asia, it will rapidly turn into a nuclear war. Uh, and then in addition to that, there are a few other factors that are making the world much more dangerous. Uh, one is the possibility of cyber terrorism. We used to think that the worst thing a terrorist could do would be to get their hands on perhaps one or two small nuclear weapons and attack a single city. But now the concern is that terrorists could carry out a cyber attack, break into the command and control systems of one of the nuclear powers, and trigger a nuclear war. And then finally, there's the climate crisis, which is making all of these things worse. Right. The nuclear powers, the countries that have nuclear weapons, uh, have been telling us for years that they hope to get rid of them someday when the world is safer. But the problem is that the climate crisis is making the world more dangerous. And as it unfolds over the coming decades, there's going to be increased pressure on societies all over the world, which will increase the chance of conflict. Yeah. And if nuclear weapons are on the table, it's going to increase the chance of nuclear war. But wasn't, wasn't reducing nuclear weapons down to zero, in other words, getting rid of nuclear weapons, wasn't that the premise of the Non-Proliferation non Treaty, which I believe was signed in, what, 1968? 
Yeah, absolutely. The treaty uh, called for countries that didn't have nuclear weapons not to develop them. But equally importantly, it called on the countries which had them to engage in good faith negotiations starting then to eliminate their nuclear arsenals. And that was more than 50 years ago. And frankly, there is no serious effort on the part of any of the nuclear weapon states to meet that obligation and get rid of their weapons. Yeah. So I, uh, I saw a TED Talk recently uh, from, nine, from 2018, a few years ago, uh, featuring Brian Toon. And it's a very candid and frightening look at the, uh, the situation. Uh, I mean, that TED Talk was viewed by 8 million people. By the way, you were mentioned in it. Well, congratulations on that. It's a, it's a very serious conversation that, uh, that's hard to have because um, we don't want to believe that uh, we have the capacity to literally destroy uh, most life on this planet uh, with, with, with these weapons of war that we have been developing and, quote, perfecting and, and, uh, and expanding the, the number. I mean, I guess, I guess the, the number is down a little bit, but when it's down from 15,000 to 13,000, that's not much reassurance uh, that we've made any real progress. Well, that's exactly right. We, we haven't made any real progress. You know, if we can, we can still kill ourselves many, many times over. And so the fact that we have fewer weapons really hasn't changed that reality at all. Um, and I think you hit it exactly on target with that remark about we don't want to believe that this can happen. Right. That really is in many ways the nub of the problem. We, 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 we not only do we don't want to believe, but we don't want to believe, but we in fact don't believe. And it, it's... It's understandable. I mean, this is a very difficult thing for people to get their arms around. You look around on a beautiful day and you think, oh, my God, I, I can't imagine this all disappearing. But it can. And in fact, it will if we keep acting the way we are, because we are heading towards nuclear war. And we have to understand that we are here today only because we have been inordinately lucky. It was luck that prevented nuclear war. That was a quote from, from former Secretary of, of Defense Robert McNamara. And luck isn't going to hold out forever. Sooner or later, forces that we talked about a few minutes ago are going to override our run of good luck, and something truly catastrophic is going to happen. But the good news is that doesn't have to happen. Right. This is not something that's outside of our control. It's not, you know, nuclear weapons are not a force of nature. These are, are little machines that we have built ourselves, and we know how to take them apart. We just have to summon the political will to do that. And that means is perhaps the first step, believing again, as we all did believe in the 1980s, that nuclear war could happen and we needed to do something about it. Mm. I say, yeah, a, a sobering but very honest, I think, uh, presentation of the concern. Let, let me, uh, I want to look at uh, the last three presidents, if you don't mind, and, and kind of assess their, their understanding of the problem and their interest in committing to do something about it. And their track record. I'll start with Obama, who at one point said, and I quote, as long as nuclear weapons exist, we are no longer truly safe. And I remember when he was here in Iowa talking very aggressively about, uh, about getting rid of nuclear weapons. Uh, I mean, is, was, that, was that a serious promise on his part and he just was not able to deliver on it? I mean, what's... It, it's hard to know. I mean, Obama said that we need to get rid of nuclear weapons. He made the famous speech in Prague soon after he became president that the U.S. sought the security of a world free of nuclear weapons. But he qualified it immediately in the same sentence, actually, saying that it might not happen in his lifetime. 
<laughs> and it, it, it's not clear how deep his commitment to nuclear abolition was. What is clear, I think, is that he, like all presidents of the United States, had failed to understand that this task, getting rid of nuclear weapons, needs to be their highest priority. Mm -hmm. And that, too, is understandable. The, the president of the United States, assuming that he's a person or she's a person of goodwill, is hit by all kinds of demands on their sure. time and energy. There are all kinds of problems that, they're, that we're facing every day. But we have to understand that if we don't get rid of nuclear weapons, we're going to have a nuclear war. And if that happens, nothing else that we're doing is going to matter. Right. And so this has got to be the highest national priority. And even a president like Obama, who said that we needed to get rid of these weapons or they would get rid of us, did not act as though he believed this should be our highest national yeah. priority. I think that's the same problem we're having with, with President Biden, who's also spoken quite eloquently about the need to get rid of nuclear weapons, but is not moving in that direction. Yeah. So have they moved us in the wrong direction or just uh, are we just stuck on stuck where we're at? Well, I think we're primarily stuck where we're at, although the simple fact that we have not acted moves us in the wrong direction. It's not like we have, like we can just stay in place. Right. Every day that we don't get rid of these weapons brings us one day closer to a nuclear apocalypse. Mm -hmm. And so in that sense, I think that they did move us in the wrong direction because they failed to do what needed to be done. And how about President Trump? Uh, again, making no promises about addressing the nuclear weapon problem, but... Uh, what is his track record on the issue? Uh, well, it's hard to know what his thinking about nuclear weapons was, because <laughs> as with everything else, that he said many different things, right. and his thinking appeared to be quite chaotic on the subject. <laughs> yes. um, but uh, he also moved us in the wrong direction, uh, and, and actively, by building on a program started by President Obama to spend an enormous sum of money, well over a trillion dollars over the next 30 years, to enhance and improve our nuclear arsenal and it was the, this was originally proposed by president obama mm -hmm. which was a i think a very very bad policy decision on his part and but president and, trump and, and took a bad decision and made it worse and he was and for obama that was in direct contradiction to what he said in prague and elsewhere that's right and it was and it was a deal that he cut with senate republicans in order to get them to uh approve the new start treaty uh and it was a bad deal uh, he, he should not have made this promise. Um, the, the Republicans shouldn't have demanded it. Uh, the last thing in the world that we need to do is spend $1.7 trillion guaranteeing that we have a nuclear arsenal for the next 50 years. We're not going to be here in 50 years if we haven't gotten rid of those, these nuclear weapons. We may not be here in five or 10 years if we don't get rid of them. And that is, is, is the reality that needs to be addressed by whoever is president. And again, would you say back in the 80s, uh, and again, that was when I, I got involved because of this issue in 1982 while living in Ireland, in fact, uh, getting involved with I Irish uh, C&D. But would you say that, uh, or actually it was 84, would you say that this was um, the, the, the activism of the 80s, the nuclear freeze campaign, uh, uh, the, the, the great, great peace march, so many other things, would you say that those had a demonstrable impact on helping to move us in the right direction? Oh, absolutely. I think we are all here today because of that, of that activism in the 1980s. Uh, Gorbachev in particular has been extremely explicit in talking about the impact. Uh, he was speaking specifically about the physicians movement that I'm part of, the impact that we had on changing his thinking about nuclear weapons. 
and getting him to understand the urgent need to get rid of them, something which he actually tried to do with, with President Reagan. And Reagan also, uh, you know, had a complete change in his thinking about nuclear weapons. When he became president in 1981, he was the most hawkish president we've oh, ever gosh, had. He I talked remember. about fighting and winning a nuclear war in Europe and actually yes. deployed weapons, the Pershing missiles, the 1983, in order to be able to do that. Yeah, he, and he, just a year after that, he joins with Gorbachev and says we can never win and must never fight a nuclear war. So what, it was a, what, what a, happened? What changed his mind? Because I remember that. That was, that was a phenomenal transformation. Uh, I, I think it was a number of things, but, uh, things, but uh, they were all part of this movement. Uh, we, members of our movement, Dr. Helen Caldecott in particular, actually had the opportunity to meet with Reagan personally and talk to him about what would happen if there was a nuclear war. Uh, in the popular culture, Reagan responded often, got his information from movies. The movie The Day After mm -hmm. uh, is said to have had a huge impact on his thinking. Okay. And the um, discovery of uh, the nuclear winter phenomenon, which made it clear that a nuclear war could not be survived, uh, also, I think, figured in his thinking as well. Um, all of this was part of a huge movement that millions of people in the United States and around the world mm -hmm. participated in. And if it had not been for that movement, I don't think that these leaders would have changed their minds. So what, is it, what will it take to generate uh, another uh, such movement uh, in, the, in, in, the, in 2021, 2022 well, rather? I, I think we need to build something here in the United States similar to the freeze. And in fact, we have started to do that. We've launched a campaign called Back from the Brink. Mm, uh, there's yes, a terrific website for the campaign at preventnuclearwar.org. Uh, and this is a campaign modeled on the freeze which has put forward a prescription of what U.S. nuclear policy ought to be. The key demand of this campaign is for the United States to enter now into negotiations with the other nuclear armed states for a verifiable, enforceable, time-bound agreement mm. to eliminate their nuclear weapons. Right. And this is something which the present administration could do. It could launch this initiative. There's no guarantee that it will be successful, but there's absolutely no excuse for not trying. Okay. And again, if, if uh, it seems like the 2024 presidential election, which will start uh, in mid-November after the midterm elections are over, seems like that's a perfect opportunity to begin to really elevate the, uh, the, uh, the, uh, the, the, the movement's profile. Uh, absolutely. This needs to be a central issue in the next campaign, which it has not been uh, in any campaign for many years. The campaign, though, is, is, is already ongoing. We have secured the endorsement of over 60 cities across the country, including major centers like um, Chicago, Los Angeles, San Francisco, mm. Washington, D.C., Boston, Minneapolis. Um, and we've secured the endorsement of seven state legislative bodies. Mm -hmm. uh, Good. Uh, that's more a, than 300 that's a... local elected officials. We need to build this campaign. Yeah. Well, Ira, I really appreciate you taking the chance, uh, taking the time to join us. Uh, Ira, thank you. My pleasure, and thanks very much for uh, having a conversation about this important issue. Folks, we've been talking with uh, Dr. Ira uh, Helfand about um, nuclear war, and it's a subject we need to be uh, talking more about, thinking more about, and taking action on. Again, this is Ed Fallon, and when we come back from a short break, Kathy Burns joins me for our farm and food segment. Uh, going out, I want to leave you with a song that should have been our wake-up call decades ago when it first was released by uh, Nina. A German song, a German German singer and songwriter. Uh, it's called 99 Red Balloons." Ninety-nine red balloons floating in the summer sky. Panic bears, it's red alert. There's something here from somewhere red. 
Architecture by Synthesis provides planning, design, and design-build services for high-performance, low-maintenance, affordable homes and buildings. Owner Mark Clipsham is adamantly and actively committed to supporting the mission of the Fallon Forum and community radio stations. Mark knows we must all live and work with the goal of building better health for both people and planet. And he works to implement that vision through his stewardship of architecture by synthesis. You can learn more at architecturebysynthesis.com. At Story County Veterinary Clinic, Dr. Kim Holding has over 30 years of experience working with all creatures great and small. Cat, dog, horse, cow, elephant. Well, if you've got a pet elephant, you may be in trouble. Kim's clients stick with her year after year because they know she'll do right by them and their pets and farm animals. So give Kim a shout to keep your animals happy and healthy. Call 515-232-8766. That's 232-8766. Back to the forum. You know, remember you can support this alternative to the shock jocks by becoming a monthly donor, or if you own a small business or run a nonprofit, you can become a sponsor of this program. And speaking of sponsors, thanks to Architecture by Synthesis, adamantly and actively supporting the mission of the Fallon Forum and community radio stations. Owner Mark Lipsham knows we have to build better health for people and the planet, and the services he provides are committed to that goal. That's Architecture by Synthesis. Uh, Kathy Burns joining me now for our September Garden Q&A. Kathy, welcome to the program. Thank you. What kind of questions are on people's minds these days? Well, a lot of them have to do with the extremely hot growing season that we've had here in the Midwest yeah. and some surrounding areas as well. Heat, drought. A lot of people across the country understand that. But before we get into those questions, there was a post that <laughs> spoke to me, and I think it would speak to you, you too, Ed. Okay. Um, I just want to read it, and then we'll, we'll have a little, a little feedback about it. Here's the post. Last month, my HOA discussed the, quote, problem of my plants and that it causes more stinging insects to thrive in the neighborhood. They are also worried that they will quote, grow out of control and, quote, look ostentatious and gaudy. We will see what happens next year, as this year my new neighbor and old neighbors voted in my favor because they find joy in the animals I bring to our street. I'm guessing one of these days I will need to go up against the HOA and I will not be a pushover. <laughs> and again, HOA is Homeowners Association. Yes, yeah. thank you. Well, then this uh, lady goes on to list about a dozen animals and insects that she likes to see in her yard. She concludes with, in support of having an ecosystem in our yard. I do have to say one thing. I have not had one mosquito bite this summer. The spiders, frogs, and toads take care of them for me. <laughs> I also have not been stung, even though I'm always around stinging insects. I just thought that was great. Yeah, and uh, you know, so many of these homeowners associations are, are, are like, it, it's ridiculous the, the kinds of rules and regulations they have relevant to plants and and uh, pollinator, pollinator habitat. So I don't know. I, I, are you have you been in response uh, in contact with her at all? Or? No, but yeah. uh, there were uh, most people were saying, you know, you go, girl, and <laughs> I love the pollinators, and we would let you come into our neighborhood and plant <laughs> it. So there are fortunately more and more uh, homeowners, 
landlords, landladies, folks uh, who are even in businesses, HOAs, yeah. even businesses who are seeing that there's a real cool factor in yeah. growing food and pollinator plants in your yeah, front right. space. Well, I love it. Good story. We'll see how it ends. But uh, yeah, what else we got for questions? Well, heat-related posts. Yeah. Um, and someone asks, is anyone else getting a late or no harvest of tomatoes this year? Mm. I have some tomato plants that haven't even gotten one tomato. I don't know if it's because of the heat we've had or what. My... Routine has never changed in all the years I've planted, and I've never experienced this. We're in not quite the same boat no, here. we've had tomatoes. It haven't been very robust, you know? Right, right. But we've, we, we've seen people, I mean, <laughs> we were gifted three different uh, bowls full of uh, cherry tomatoes yesterday by three different people. So some people are having great harvests. Some people <laughs> are, but I'd say in general, more people are saying they're struggling. Yeah. Um, it's just, and it's the excessive heat. And we did read earlier this year and report that above 90 degrees, tomatoes really have a hard time setting fruit. Mm-hmm. Um, the pollination just doesn't seem to take well. We've, there was had, a, an, we've had a lot of that, a lot of, a lot of above 90 degree weather. Yeah, you know? and there was another question similar. Lots of my tomatoes look like this. The photo shows tomatoes with really uneven coloring, a few blotchy streaks, kind of like scars across Mm -hmm. them. It's been a tough year. This person says that's a theme. Are they safe to eat? Can I cut off the damaged parts and freeze the rest? They look like they're getting a little sketchy where the skin breaks, so I'm not sure they're good or not. First thing, yes, they're good to eat. Just you cut off the spots that, that you don't like the appearance of. Freeze and eat or just eat fresh the rest of that tomato. Yeah, and it's not an insect or or you know fung or, or fungus that causes that. It's it's just it's just cracking. I, I, I mean, I compare it to um, uh, stretch marks. <laughs> as as you expand, uh, sometimes cracks form, <laughs> and this is because of, of, of the of an une, uneven watering. Mm-hmm. I mean, much worse with uneven watering is blossom and rot. This is just a little bit of a. Yeah, it doesn't look quite as pretty. But it is weather-related, too, I think, because it's been harder for people to keep up with watering. A lot of people don't have the ability to water every other day in this kind of heat. And when there's been a dry spell and then suddenly there's growth in a tomato and a big rain, boom, that stretching can occur. So very heat-related. Yeah, and I think we want to – we haven't – Tomatoes have been kind of mixed for us, but what's been real a real drag is the potatoes. I'd say our mm-hmm. harvest is down about seventy percent, and um, oh, our I, little I think, Irish hearts are crying. <laughs> every everything we've considered, we've ruled out except probably the impact of heat. And so, and this this applies to tomatoes too. You could, you know, mulch. We we mulch our tomatoes mm-hmm. early. But, you know, maybe we could probably be even mulching them more. Yeah, and, just protect them a little more and because should, the we, heat is here and it's going to keep coming. And probably doing that with our tomatoes, too. I mean, mm-hmm. potatoes as well. A um, couple quick fall planting and bed, bed prep things. Someone says they're determined to get garlic planted this year. Where do you buy it to plant? Um, they've heard of different varieties, and they're just not sure what to do. When do you put them in the beds? Um, it's, it's really... Uh, too early right now. Well, for uh, and it depends on where you are. In central Iowa, we shoot for the first week of November. Mm-hmm. You know, it used I mean, to be end of August yeah, or end of October, October yeah. and now it's the first week. Of and we, November. in terms of seed, I, I mean, we, we've been saving the same seed now since 2015. <laughs> but people, as far as varieties, there are hardneck varieties that do work for the 
over winter planting, and that would be the preferable one instead of the soft necks yeah. that I think are, are a little more a summer thing, a spring and summer thing. Yeah. Um, somebody wants to know how to prep their bed for their raised bed for winter, and they are correct that yes, they can use a pitchfork, stir in the dirt after and more compost after all the plants are removed. They were going to add some straw to the top of that. That's a pretty good call. I, really? I don't know if I'd go with straw on it. Well, we use leaves. Yeah. We, yeah. Have, we have a lot of leaves. We don't bag them. Yeah. I, and again, mostly you just put stuff on that's going to help amend the soil in the mm-hmm. spring and, and maybe protect it you know, during, during the cold months. But yeah, straw, I guess you have a lot of straw kicking around, but that's kind of a premium around here. Mm. <laughs> yes, that's true. Yeah. That's true. And then someone else was asking about cover crops to build their soil for next season. Um, where, what seed do you use? For us, it's an easy answer because we bought some turnip seeds some years ago, like five, 2017. Years, five years ago. So many seeds. Still viable. Just throw them out there and let them grow. Yeah. I know people were asking questions about kale too, I believe. And uh, yeah, there's but so many ways to use good kale. Good ways to use the produce. Yeah. Um, chop it up, put it in soups and stews. I'll do a special segment on kale someday. That'd be fun. Kathy, thanks for joining us. And thanks to my guests today, David Kraft, uh, Ted Glick, and Ira Helfand. Uh, Also, thanks to our production team of Sherry Hardina, Forrest Detterman, Charles Goldman, Kathy, and myself, Ed Fallon. Thanks to our local small business partners, Gateway Marketing Cafe, Vibes Kitchen and Bar, Architecture by Synthesis, Story County Veterinary Clinic, Western Optometry, and Dr. David Drake, Family Psychiatry. And thanks to our nonprofit partners, Bold Iowa, and Birds and Bees Urban Farm. Remember, your support for this program matters a lot, so go to the Fallon Forum website to learn more about what you can do to make a difference. Thanks again, and we'll be back next week with another hour of cutting-edge talk radio.